Do me a favor and uh, turn with us to 2 Kings chapter 8. Uh, We're starting in verse 7. And um, if you've been traveling with us, fantastic. If you haven't been traveling with us, we have been taking a look at 1 and 2 Kings over the last several weeks or even months. And we now land ourselves at around 847 B.C., 847 B.C. I always say this, and so I want you to know this. Uh, As you're studying the Old Testament, you're going to want to know these dates. 931 B.C., that's when the kingdom divided, the 12 tribes of Israel divided, and the 10 tribes went to the north, and the Two tribes stayed in the south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And we're working our way in the book of Kings through the different kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And we are moving towards these important dates. 722 B.C. is when the Assyrian captivity happened. That is when the Assyrians came and tore out or took out the northern kingdom of Israel. And then moving on down to 586 B.C., the Babylonian captivity, when the Babylonians took out the southern kingdom of Israel. So right now we find ourselves at 847 B.C. in the book of 2 Kings. Corey Tenboom said this. She said, You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And I feel like uh, as we study uh, God's word here tonight, we're somewhat in that position, or that statement is applicable to what's going on with us. If you think about it, think of all the things we don't have this week. The ability to uh, go to a sporting event or watch a sporting event on TV. Go to movies. Go to malls. We're home with our family. And I think it's an amazing and great opportune time, a fantastic opportunity, to re-examine that statement of Corey Ten Boom and find that Christ is all we need. He's our all in all. And so as we look through uh, the Old Testament, we see Christ throughout the Old Testament. We see him uh, uh, in, uh, in all the different pictures that we encounter here in Second Kings. And here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves studying the life of Elisha. He took the mantle from Elijah. And last week, we, we, we examined uh, 2 Kings 8, 1 through 6, where the king restored the Shunammite woman's land. We talked about what a picture that was of all that God can do to restore what he intended for us. What a blessing that was. And now we come to somewhat um, strange or peculiar stories, but... If, you'll, if we pay attention, they have a fantastic application for us. Let me read to you 2 Kings chapter 8, 
starting at verse 7. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet with him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will surely die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Haziel, Haziel excuse me, said, But what is this? Or, But what is your servant, a dog? That he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died, and Haziel reigned in his place. So why don't you just pray with me real quick. Lord, uh, here in 2020, Lord, we're looking for answers. And we see, Lord, that uh, your word here um, is in some ways foreign to us. And yet, Lord, it couldn't be more applicable. And I pray, we pray together, that you would bring these truths to our hearts and minds by your spirit Knit them to our very beings so that we would go out by your resource and strength and love and share with a hurting and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Amen. Well, here we have Elisha, the one who took the mantle from Elijah. Here he is, and he's going to Damascus. Damascus is an enemy of the Israelites. And here we have this Ben-Hadad. He's king of Syria. And it was told him, saying that the man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, or excuse me, Haziel, sorry, take a present in your hand and go meet with the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? Now, you know this because uh, you've been traveling with us. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I want you to just turn back to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. And notice that we have an enemy of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 8, Ben-Hadad. Syria and Damascus were enemies of the Israelites. But this Ben-Hadad had before come against the Israelites and God had shown himself mighty and strong. In fact, in chapter 6... Of Second Kings, sorry, skipping around. Ben Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and besieged Samaria, northern Israel. And at that time, uh, Syria was defeated in a mighty way, in a powerful way, in a miraculous way, uh, by the Israelites. 
So Ben-Hadad, the enemy of Israel, the king of Syria, when he finds himself on his deathbed, calls for the man of God. And I want you to see what a stark contrast that is in chapter 1 of 2 Kings to Israel's own king. Read with me in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah, Ahaziah, remember this story, fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. Ahaziah, he's the king of Israel, an earlier king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Look what he does when he's on his deathbed or when he's hurt. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from these, this injury. This is what the nation of Israel had fallen to. The nation of Israel and their kings, when they got in trouble, called upon the name of Satan. Here we have an avowed enemy of the nation of God, and he finds himself on his deathbed, and he calls for the man of God. Isn't that interesting? The Bible tells us that the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And here, right smack dab in the middle of 2 Kings, a following of the um, lines of the kings, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, we have this story of an avowed enemy. One of the things that the Bible tells us from beginning to end and in the New Testament is that those who once were afar off can come near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no uh, uh, prohibition against that, or there's no distinction in class, or distinction in nationality, or distinction in economic structure. Here, we have an avowed enemy of the nation of Israel, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Shall I recover from this disease, he says at the end of verse 8. So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this disease? He wanted answers from the men of God who knew God as much as they could know God. And Elisha says, go back and say to him, you will certainly recover. Now, many Bible scholars right here in this area get very mixed up or, uh, excuse me, they get very perplexed. Elisha says to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And that's nothing to be puzzled about. The Lord did show Elisha that he would recover from the illness, but that he would die at the hand of his assistant, Haziel. And he set his countenance as a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And this Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? Isn't that interesting? When you go back through the Bible, men of God weep for their people. Well, you could turn and see Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 said, The Bible says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it for about what they were about ready to do to him, but also that they were to ignore him, the savior of the world. And he was sick about it and he wept over it. Paul says in Romans 
9, verse 3, an astounding statement, he says. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He hurt for those who weren't included, who weren't drawn in, who weren't amongst the people of God. And he wanted them badly to come and be people of God. John eleven thirty five 35 simply says, Jesus wept. This man, Elisha, hurt for his people. Why? Go on, on in verse 12. Because I know, he says, that evil that you're going to do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you'll set on fire. Their young men you'll kill. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. This one wept for what was coming and the destruction at the hand of this man. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 15, for us today. What do we do for people to minister them when they're hurting, when they're struggling, when um, uh, their life is a mess? The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In fact, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, men and women of God hurt for other people. And oftentimes when we're ministering, we don't have to uh, be great in theology or all of our doctrine. No, the Bible says just go and weep with those who are weeping. Give them a hug. Give them something to drink or something to eat or wipe their brow or whatever. Here, the man of God shows us that. And Hazael, or Hazael says in verse 13, as we continue the story, What is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? Isn't it fascinating? Whether or not Hazael here is lying, or whether he doesn't really think he's capable of doing all of these things, what a weird position men and women are in without Christ. They don't realize that the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. Who could know it? Spurgeon said this about this uh, character of the Bible. Our ignorance or of the depravity of our own hearts is a startling fact. Hazel didn't believe that he was bad enough to do any of the things here anticipated. Spurgeon appealed to you, he said. I appeal to you, Christian men and women. If anyone had told you that you would have loved your Savior so little as you have done, if any prophet had told you in the hour of your conversion that you would have served him so feebly as you have done, would you have believed it? He goes on to say, as it turned out, God knew the actions of Hazael. Hazael, I'm saying that wrong, sorry. But he did not make Hazael do it. It was absolutely foretold that this one would be the king of Syria. The prophet knew the fact right well, and he clearly described the means. Else, why should he look into Hazael's face and weep? God foreknew the mischief that he would do when he came to the throne, yet that foreknowledge did not in the least degree interfere with this man's free agency. You see, there's a prophecy, there's a, uh, uh, a mantle that was given to Elijah, from Elisha, and it was uh, to anoint this one, or um, uh, it was uh, a commission that this one, this Hazael, would be king. If you turn with me back to 1 Kings 
19. 1 Kings 19. In verse 16, it says this. Verse, uh, 2 Kings, I'm sorry, I'm saying 1 Kings. 2 Kings, oh, oh, I'm screwed up. It's 1 Kings 19, verse 16. Here it is. I'll actually start in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazio as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. The Lord said this to Elijah. And now Elisha is carrying on the ministry of Elijah. So I kind of botched that in telling you the scriptures, but here's what I'm trying to say to you here. Haziel, it was told by God to Elijah, the prophet prior to Elisha, that Haziel would be a king of Syria. And so as Elisha is going through the story in 2 Kings chapter 8, he has this knowledge. And so he is uh, staring in verse 11 into this man's face, knowing all the dastardly things that he's going to do. And he weeps over the people. Just like you and I, we weep over the people who are hurting or lost or in pain or pitiful or need uh, 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 food or bread or a hug or someone to tell them they love them. Here it is. Men of God, women of God have compassion and they weep with others who are weeping. Well, here, um, Haziel said, but what is this, your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? He underestimated the, the, uh, the ability of the human heart without the Lord uh, to do these evil things. And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria because of First Kings 19. He had known it through uh, his uh, protege or his uh, mentor, excuse me, and he uh, had heard it from God. And then he departed from Elijah and came to his master. Verse 14 of 2 Kings 8. What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face so that he died, and Hazel reigned in this place. In other words... This man smothered the king of Syria and killed him. And it's, it's a um, interesting piece of scripture here, right smack dab in the middle of these Israelite kings and these kings of Judah. It shows us that God can make an impact on all the, not can make an impact, does make an impact on all the nations. And he is the Lord of all the nations. The Bible tells us the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight. And so here he's having an impact even in the quote unquote enemies of God. And yet We still have free will and free agency, and we see that in this one, Haziel, who was to be king in his place and thwarted uh, 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 what God was going to do by installing him as king, by running ahead of God in his evil ways and smothering the king of uh, Syria. 
And sometimes we can do that. God's called us to a position or a place, and we get uh, uh, impatient and try to manipulate the things, uh, circumstances, so that we can be put into place uh, quicker than the Lord had intended. It's a good lesson for us, a lesson to wait on the Lord and to be um, uh, so in tune to what the Lord has for us that we even if we know we've been called to something, we allow the circumstances to transpire by the Lord so that he can move us in the direction that he's called us to. Well, moving on, we now come into uh, uh, the kings of Judah. We haven't uh, uh, dealt with the kings of Judah uh, for several years. <laughs> uh, Uh, chapters here, but now uh, because we've been going through the life of Elijah and Elisha, but now we move back into these kings of Judah. So stay with us. You're going to have to have your thinking cap on here because we're trying to get um, uh, through this and set up so we can see what happens in chapter nine. In the fifth year of Joram, verse 16 of second Kings chapter eight, Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. Now remember, I'm going to show this up to the camera. I write out all the kings of Israel and Judah, all the kings. And on one side, I have all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah. And this is going to be, get very complicated if maybe you don't have such a list. If you don't see me, and I will get you a list or email it to me. But now we're talking about the Jehoram that's reigning in Judah. There's a, con, uh, a, con, a passage of scripture in Second Chronicles 21 that also tells this same story and gives us a lot of information. Now, Jehoram here is a king of Judah, as I said, but remember in Israel at the same time, there's a king called Joram. Sometimes he's also called Jehoram and they are the king. They're kings at the same time. So it's kind of confusing. Well, here in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, who was Ahab? He was husband to Jezebel. Um, He was related to Omri. Remember that the son of Omri and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, these men. And so what the writer is telling you here is, is that Joram is the son of Ahab, who was the king of Israel. And Jehoshaphat, having been the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as this king. So now the son of Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, is in Judah. That's where we are. I hope you're got through all of that. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. That's important. You need to know that. Here you have a Judah king walking in the ways of Ahab, an Israel king. In other words, Ahab's sin was so ugly and gross and predominant and widespread that it even spread to the kings of Judah. Catch that? Sin travels. It's a ripple effect. And somehow, some way, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. How was it? The next part of the scripture gives it to you. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And now, here you go. Here's another lesson for us that comes up time and time again for the people of God. And it's very difficult for some of us to obey. 
And that is that we're to be equally yoked with other believers, not unequally yoked in all of our permanent relationships, which would include marriage, which include things like business partnerships and others. When we have permanent relationships, the Bible tells us that we're to be equally yoked. And here, Jehoram of Judah took a wife from one of the Israeli kings named Ahab, who was Jezebel's husband, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord in a devious way. No doubt his wife had impact on him. And so that's another lesson for us. First, don't become unequally yoked with someone who's not a Christian. But second of all, when we're husband and wife with someone, what kind of influence are we having on our husband or our wife? We can lead them to places that aren't good or aren't for their best or aren't godly. Or we can lead them to places that are very godly. And we can help them come to a place where they grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. That comes straight from 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. God never forgets his promises. And he had promised to the line of David, to David, that he would have a, uh, someone on the uh, throne forever. And that's interesting because currently in, in Israel, there is no king from the line of David And yet Jesus Christ is coming back and will reign and rule from Jerusalem forever. And so we see here that God keeps his promises. And I wonder, even this week, even these last few months, even with all the news that's coming, do we believe that God will never leave us nor forsake us? Do we believe it? He won't and he hasn't. We live in a fallen world that's been decimated by sin. And now we're seeing Effects of that through a virus. The Lord's coming back. And he's going to make everything right. And we're going to rule and reign with the Lord in victory for eternity. And that's a drop-dead, locked-out promise. It's going to happen. Well, here, uh, the Lord remembered his promise to to David and his line going on in verse 20. In his days... Edom revolted against Judah's authority. You would even see God's promise always being adhered to. He never forgets his promises. If you remember in Genesis chapter 27, verse 40, listen to what the Lord says there. Genesis chapter 27, verse 40. Here, uh, Isaac And Esau are fighting, or not fighting, or are getting or receiving their father, uh, uh, their father's blessing. And then in verse 40, it says this, by your sword, you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. He's talking to Esau there. That's a prophecy that he would be in a um, uh, constant conflict with his 
Brothers, look here. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. God's word is always true and everlasting. Here in his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram, Joram, he went uh, to Zaire. Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him. And the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna, another part uh, city, another city, revolted at that time. Now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, re- reigned in his place. Now, notice right there, they went from Jehoram to Joram, but it's the same person, the king of Judah. They do the same with the Joram of Israel. But right now, we're talking about the king of Judah. And if you went back to Second Chronicles 21, you'd see... That in order to consolidate his power, one of the things that this, uh, this one did, Jehoram, to follow in the ways of Ahab, he killed all his brothers in order to get the kingdomship, in order to be the king. He was very evil. He engaged in uh, worship of other gods and those sorts of things. And now Ahaziah, his son, is going to come and reign in his place. Jehoram reigned in Judah, but now Ahaziah, his son, will be reigning. So in the 12th year, verse 25, of Joram, the son of Ahab, that's the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 when he became king, and he reigned, listen to this, one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. Catch this. She was the granddaughter of Omri, She was the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Omri was Ahab's dad. In other words, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like of the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Again, he's connected in an unequally yoked manner. He follows in the way of Ahab and her, his, or excuse me, his wife, Jezebel. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazio, king of Syria, Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Catch this. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel, the valley, to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah. And when he had fought against Hazio, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. Catch that. Ahaziah, the king of Judah, goes down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel. Why? Because he was hurt and sick. Guess what's coming? Well, here it comes. We're now in 841 B.C., And the Bible tells us in chapter 9, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, remember he had a school of prophets, he said to him, get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive in that place, look for Jehu, 
Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Now, let me remind you, we read it in 1 Kings, right? Remember what we read in 1 Kings 19, verse 16. We read that the Lord spoke to Elijah and said that Jehu, the son of Nimshi, was to be king over Israel. In other words, the Lord is completely sovereign over the future. Doesn't that make us feel great this week? The Lord is sovereign over our future. He had told Elijah several years prior that Jehu, one of the army commanders, would be king. And how would that be? Because he wasn't in the line. He wasn't in the line. But here he says this. Get yourself ready, take that oil, messenger, and go to this place for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, verse 3, chapter 9, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and run or flee and don't delay. Funny. The Bible's funny in some places. So the young man, the prophet, the, guy, uh, uh, the messenger, the prophet, or one of the sons of the prophets, sorry, this young man, the messenger, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he arrived, there were captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a messenger for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on Jehu's head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And this is important. This is the key to what we're going to talk about for the rest of the night. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Do you remember that? Jezebel had killed all the prophets. Here, the Lord says he's going to avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of the blood of all the servants of the Lord. In other words, the, the New Testament tells us what? Vengeance is the Lord's. We've been studying about that in Hebrews. It's also in Romans, I believe. And here, we see that vengeance will be the Lord's. There's this prophecy in 1 Kings 19, several years before, to the uh, uh, prophet Elijah, Elisha now, several years after this, has taken over the mantle and is now anointing a king of Israel, a king of Israel named Jehu, a commander who's going to wipe out the dynasty of Omri. Omri was the king of Ahab. In other words, Ahab and Jezebel and all their things, their evil things that they did, this one's going to wipe them out. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In other words, we can allow the Lord to take his vengeance. Well, let's see how he does it. That I may avenge the blood of my servants. I read you that at the hand of Jezebel. Verse 8. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. Catch it. 
And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of the ground um, at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Of course he did. He was worried about what they would say or what they would think. And so Jehu came out to the servants of the master, and one said to him, Hey, is everything okay? Isn't it funny? Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, Ah, you know the man in his babble. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord. Uh, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of his steps. And they blew the trumpets. They blew the trumpets saying, Jehu, Jehu is king. So, you following me? Elisha now has sent a messenger to appoint this commander, a captain of armies, not in the line of the king's uh, families of Israel, and made him, uh, the Lord's going to make him the king of Israel. And he's going to wipe out the dynasty of Omri, who was the father of Ahab, who married Jezebel. Everybody with me? Well, there's no one here to say it, but here's what happens. Verse 14, so Jehu, the son of uh, uh, Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. You catching that? Jehu, uh, Israeli uh, one who's been picked to be king, conspires against Joram, the current king. Now, Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against this Hezio, king of Assyria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds He got hurt in battle by the Syrians, which they had inflicted on him when he fought with Aziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you're so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go to tell it to Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, catching that? Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram, the two kings there, one from Israel, one from Judah. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, hey, I see a company of men. And Joram, which is the king of Israel, said, get a horseman and send him to meet me and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, catching what happened here? The messenger who went out to talk to Jehu was scared by Jehu. And the messenger or the watchman that's up on the wall reports back uh, to the people of Israel, including the king Joram. Hey, the messenger went with them and is not coming back. In other words, he joined Jehu's army. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. In other words, Jehu is very intense, and everyone knows it. So Joram says, make ready, and his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, 
king of Judah. Do you remember that both of these have relations with Ahab and Jezebel? They went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and meet him on... Oh, isn't this interesting? Isn't this fascinating? They meet him, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, meet Jehu, who's now been anointed to be the king of Israel. They meet him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. If you remember now, in 1 Kings 21, Ahab and Jezebel obtained... Naboth's vineyard, this land, by murdering him, the innocent owner. And why did they murder him? Simply because this gluttonous, greedy king, Ahab, and his conniving wife, Jezebel, just wanted this property beside them. There was nothing more. They had all the property they needed, but they wanted this, and they trumped up charges to kill this man, and now they're back. And they meet Jehu, or now their descendants are back, excuse me, and they meet Jehu on this property. This is important. And it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, hey, is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? Then Joram turned around and fled. Joram turned around and said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah, hey, other king. We're in trouble. That's what he's saying. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength, and he shot Jehoram, the king of Israel, between his arms, and the arrow came out his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you or I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I'll repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. The Lord's word comes to pass. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. It's mine. Well, moving on, when Ahaziah, the other king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him in the chariot. And they shot at him at the ascent of Gur, which is by the Iblim. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. So now we see the vengeance coming to pass. We see now uh, the king of Israel related to uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the king of Judah related through marriage uh, 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 to these, uh, the evil king and queen. Now the queen herself. Verse 30, when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through the window. Maybe she was painting herself as a harlot. Maybe she was painting herself uh, uh, to look like a, uh, a god or a goddess or to appeal to the gods or goddess. We don't know, but she uh, put a lot of paint on. And then as Jehu entered at the gate, she says, and this is a slam on Jehu. She says, is it peace Zimri? Murder of your master. Now, Zimri was a man who's in the, or who was, was a king who ruled for seven days in the line of Israel. 
And what he did was um, he killed uh, the one before him, the king before him. And he was a murderous assassin. In other words, she's saying, you're going to, if you murder, you're no better than this murderous assassin. And oh, by the way, just like he only lasted a short time because he got assassinated after seven days, I'll defeat you too. That's what she's saying there. And he looked up at the window and said, hey, who's on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Isn't this fascinating? Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall. Some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her. For she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they didn't find anything more than the skull, the feet, the palms of the hands. And therefore they came back and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah the Tisbite, saying, on the plot of ground, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Now this prophecy was given all the way back in 1 Kings 21, 1 Kings 21, it was prophesied that she would die this death exactly like this. Are you catching it? On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuge on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so they, that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Now, folks, what in the world does this have to do with 2020. Well, this is it. You know that the Lord has set forth in his word that there are plenty of judgments in the Bible and judgments to come. And the Bible tells us at the end of the Bible that there, in, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be a great white throne judgment. God is going to get his vengeance. He is going to judge those who are outside of Christ in what's called the great white throne judgment. Verse 11 of chapter 20 says of the book of Revelation I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away. Uh, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You, you see what I'm saying here? Old Testament is a picture of what's happening in the New Testament. And God says, vengeance is mine. And he is bringing judgment. He came in the, his first coming in grace and mercy, and now we live in the church age full of grace and mercy, but he's coming again in judgment. And that might not sound like a very happy picture in this month and in this week. 
And yet the Bible tells us, for those who don't want to stand at the great white throne judgment, that we are to flee to the vengeance that was taken out at the cross. And the Bible tells us in several places, things, the transactions that happened at the cross. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. In other words, at the cross, the world's sins, our sins, past, present, and future, were imputed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Father poured out his wrath on his son. And it ended in death. But he didn't stay there. He rose again. His wrath was poured out of the cross, but Jesus Christ defeated death and rose again. So that now when we come and surrender our lives to Christ, our sins were imputed to Christ at the cross. And now when we surrender our lives to Christ, his righteousness is imputed unto us. And so what I would say is that this story is showing us how awful and terrible God's judgment is. And at the same time, when we read the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible, we know how fantastic and spectacular and wonderful and awesome his work at the cross and resurrection is and was. Here's some other scriptures, and then I'm going to close. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, it says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. What does propitiation mean? It means he received the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now here we'll close. I don't know if you caught that, but he, God, can be the the just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? How could a sinful person... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How could a sinful person make his or her way back to God? Only through the sacrifice of Christ. It's just that God penalize our sins. He justifies us when he declares us not guilty. According to our sins by the blood of Christ. So that God can be both just And one who pardons and justifies at the same time. And that's the good news. And that's what we need to know tonight, this week, this month. In the midst of these things about viruses and uh, uh, quarantines and uh, social distancing. What do we need? We need the blood of Jesus Christ. But we also need it yesterday and tomorrow. We always need the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what I would say to anybody who's with us tonight, 
is that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says that in Romans 3.23. And then it tells us that we are to repent and be converted so that our sins may be blotted out or justified, declared not guilty. You know this one. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. But how about this one? And maybe some of you here listening tonight would want to do this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, it's not that you might be saved, it's that you will be saved. And so I'm wondering that you would just pray a prayer, that you'd mean it in your heart, that you would want to be one who would give up their life for their Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would come and be a servant to him and he would raise you up in victory. And all you do is you just pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. And I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I accept that as my payment for my sins in my place. And that he rose from the grave and I'll receive him now as my Lord and Savior. And I want to repent and turn away from my sin. And I ask you to help me to live the life you want me to live. Growing closer to you and knowing you each day. You'd pray that in Jesus' name. If any of you did that, I just pray that you would email us and call us and talk to us. We'd love to engage with you. And uh, otherwise... As we close tonight, some, in some ways this is a hard message, and in some ways this is the greatest, but in, on the other hand, this is the greatest message you'll ever hear. God will have judgment, and yet we can flee to the cross where he took out his vengeance on his son and poured out his wrath on his son. And if we surrender our lives to Jesus and ask him to be the Savior and Lord of our life and count on his finished work and his resurrection, then we're spared that coming judgment. Jesus paid it all. Pray with me, would you please? Thank you, Lord, for uh, this evening and this great word. Lord, I hope this has done a number in our hearts, a number of things in our hearts, Lord, that you would convict some and bring them to a saving knowledge of who you are through Jesus, that you would help us to live a life that you've called us to live, Lord, not out of obligation or duty, I guess, Lord, but out of grace and love and responding to all that you've done to make the way back to your Father. So, Lord, I just lift up this time and just ask that you'd bless And do all the things that you want to do through uh, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Well, God bless you guys. And you have a great week. And we'll be back 1030 on Sunday. God bless you.